And I am Aware Now. Aware Now, the official platform for causes. Tune in and turn it up as we raise awareness one story at a time for the causes that tie us all together. Did you know that 44 veterans commit suicide every day? Our veterans and first responders secretly fight their own battles. On a mission, Shields and Stripes provides first-line defenders the opportunity to heal visible and non-visible wounds, helping those we need the most to live meaningful lives in service to our communities. Steve Nisbet, who served nearly 16 years and medically retired in June 2021 from the U.S. Air Force as a special warfare pararescueman, is the co-founder and current president of Shields and Stripes. Growing up in Tucson, Arizona with a game plan to go to college and play soccer, Stephen, after graduating high school and attending a local community college studying astronomy, you decided to enlist in the military to become a pararescue man. So that's quite a shift. Would love to hear the story here. Yeah, so uh, thanks. We, um, when I was younger, around my friends that were around me, they spent, um, as we grew up, I always wanted to hang out with them and whatnot, and they all were going to college. And a lot of them were going into college to become engineers <clears throat> and, and go work for IBM and Raytheon, and they all went to the U of A, so they had these scholarships to the university and whatnot, and I didn't get that, and, and I was... Even though I wasn't really into engineering and stuff, I'd still just wanted to hang out and be around my friends. <clears throat> so I was like, okay, well, I'll, uh, I'll go to school. I actually really enjoyed um, space stuff. I'll do, like, I, I'm, in, I'm a space nerd. I uh, like mm -hmm. astronomy and, and uh, those kinds of movies. Um, so I started going to school for astronomy. And, and as I went to the Pima Community College out there in Tucson, um, I started to look around at the people around me and you know, there's a lot of older folks around me. And I was like, this is not my demographic. I've, I'm like 18 years old. I've got a lot more to do. Here's what I'm going to do. So I'm going to, I'm going to join the military and I'm going to get do four years <clears throat> and then I'm going to get my GI bill and then I'll go to the university and catch up to my friends or this other path that was laid out for me was since I wanted to be in the same timeline as them, I took the ASVAB test and the recruiter came back and said, you scored actually really high on the ASVAB and you can um, do pretty much any job you want. And I was like, well, what's the most challenging job for like, you know, intellectually? And he's like, well, you're a nuclear weapons apprentice. And I was like, well, that's along the same lines. Like my, my teammates or my, my friends are going to go to, um, Raytheon work for Raytheon and IBM and whatnot, and they're going to be building missiles or whatever they're doing. So I'm going to find that way to them and go work for Raytheon when I get out. And so I had this pathway built up in my head. And as I um, selected that as my career field at the recruiter's office, I walked out ready to start a new life. And, the, and there was an army recruiter right next door and he was standing outside. He's like, Hey, can I, can I talk to you? And I was like, uh, sure. Not really trying to join the army, but what do you got? And he's like, you want to be in special forces? And I was like, dang, I've never thought of that. I've never considered myself to be in some sort of special operations career field. I didn't think I had. 
what it takes, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'll listen to what you have to say. And you listen to him. And I was like, wow, that sounds pretty cool. He's going to give me, you know, extra money to sign up and whatnot. Sounds pretty wild. Hold on a second. I don't want to be in the Army. And then I walked over, went to the Air Force and said, hey, do you have a special operations career field um, in the Air Force? Is there special operations? And he goes, yeah, we got two. We got PJs and controllers, but uh, you won't make it. So just stick with what you got. And um, just, yes, do do whatever. You, it's, it's too hard. Too many people pass, like, fail. Uh, that's 90% failure rate. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this guy will give me the information. Put my, I'm going to put my enlistment on hold for the nuclear weapons of press. Let me make a decision. So then I got the information. I actually liked combat control more. And I was like, I want to be a combat controller and uh, selected that. And then I started training. I had six months to train before I went in, took the pass test, the physical ability and stamina test. And they're like, all right, which one are you going to take? And I said, um, I thought they're the same. And they're like, well, no, one's got to swim at the beginning, one's got to swim at the end. I was like, well, the, the one at the beginning, because that's how the way I've been training. And he's like, all right, you're going to be PJ. I was like, I thought I was going to be a combat controller. And he's like, oh, they're the same thing. When you get to basic training, it'll, you'll figure it out there. And uh, it, like, you need to select whatever you want. It's the same thing. And I believed him. And it was not the same thing. And uh, <laughs> I joined to become a, a PJ. And then I went through basic training and then went through indoc, which is completely different pipeline than combat control however it panned out to work out the way I wanted it to. Okay, so (laughs) it's interesting to me that you were looking at a path where you could be in alignment with your friends and and then the path sort of shifted as as you went and you really were looking at something that was going to work for you and while it went kind of (laughs) a different way, you found where, where you needed to be, huh? Yeah, ultimately, because somebody told me I couldn't do something. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. pride took over and said, oh, I'll show you. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, so let's talk for a moment about about service. Um, while serving in 10 combat deployments, <coughs> Afghanistan and Africa, Iraq, Syria and Yemen, um, you lost over 15 teammates to combat or combat-related circumstances. Stephen, what did this sort of loss do to you in terms of your mental health? Yeah, so like I guess, like you said there, um, with 10, 10 deployments and, you know, the first one's being pretty slow, but um, throughout my career, um, yeah, losing teammates, I lost my first teammate in at Indoc in 2005, when I first joined, um, Indoc is the where the, the course where it's a, it's the selection course for PJs, or it used to be. And uh, out of 120 of us, only 12 of us made it. But during that that particular course, um, the, one of the guys that I was, he was the team leader. He was a class leader, and he was my partner for what was considered our our extended training day or our hell night. So him and I were, you know within arm's length for 36 hours, 38 hours, just always with each other carrying him. I was like 130 pounds, he was 220, and I'm carrying this this heavy dude. Um, we weren't winning anything, uh, but we were still rocking and rolling. And so a couple of weeks after that, he ended up, we had a, a pool session that he ended up passing out underwater, which is not uncommon. Um, it's, it's pretty common, I passed out underwater. Um, however, he was 42 years old at the time, um, and he had a pre-existing heart condition. So um, when he passed out, 
he ended up going into a cardiac arrest. They pulled him out and tried to do CPR, got him back, then got him to the hospital and passed away. That right there, that initial loss of when I entered in to the military, you know, this was in, within two months of me entering. Um, I, I started to normalize loss. That's when like, okay, well, this is what I joined for. I knew that this was gonna come up. And then as each loss started happening, it was just another one, you know, like, well, another friend's gone. You know, whether it's a friend taking their own life, um, a friend dying in combat, a teammate dying in a, in a vehicle accident, um, all of these people were just dying around me. And it was very normal for that to happen. Um, but what I didn't notice was that it started to take a toll as far as um, factors that I that I didn't I didn't really see and my family saw it before I did where I started to have memory loss because I would shut down my brain every single time we get into some sort of combat environment or training like or treating somebody whatever it is I'm I'm tuning out the, the gore that I'm seeing in front of me or the people that are dying around me. And that became so routine that I started tuning out everything. I was just, I would stare off into space. I'd be pushing my kids on a swing, staring into space, not really thinking about anything really. Um, and then I'd be overly thinking about what the next 12 months was gonna be, you know, or a training cycle or deployment cycle or alert cycle. So all of these things started compiling um, had nightmares that I didn't consider me nightmares. I called them recurring dreams, but it was always me being attacked by somebody and I'm trying to shoot them, but they, the trigger just wouldn't go. And then finally it gets to the end, wouldn't fire. <coughs> and I thought, I, I mean, it was a terrifying or anything, but it was every single night that that was happening. So they classified that as a nightmare. Um, I had diagnosed with sleep apnea at 30 years old. Um, and then irritability, anxiety, depression, all of these symptoms that I didn't really analyze for myself over time. Um, but it really took my, my wife sitting me down and telling me that you, your two kids, um, or my two boys, um, who were nine and seven at the time were scared of me. And that's when it kind of really hit me where like, okay, all of this is really compounding and I'm taking this stress and all these anxieties and everything. And it's easy for me to explode and like go zero to a hundred really quick on them because that's an environment, being home with the kids and the families, an environment that most of us aren't used to. And so that actually stresses us out more than combat does, uh, which is wild. Um, but it's an environment we can't control because the kids are screaming and going uh, ballistic. And then you just don't know what, what to do other than to get loud because then they'll listen to you. So once my wife said that, that was a kick in the gut. And that was a, a you know, a, I guess a wake up call for me to, to ask for some help. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, you know, because the fact of the matter is PTSD is real. It is very real for so many. And when it comes to veterans, to first responders, to law enforcement, you signed up to serve them with shields and stripes. So love for you just to share how this organization that you co-founded, how it started and, and what it is that you do, because it's phenomenal. Yeah, I think, um, thank you. 
as as I uh, asked for help, um, I was at a unit that would allowed me, or at least had the resources to work on everything, strength conditioning programs, nutrition programs. We had all these coaches and specialists, physical therapists, psychologists, neuropsychologists, and I could go to all of them and they can pretty much evaluate my entire body and mind and figure out all the things that were going on inside. So as I worked on some of those symptoms that I described earlier, um, I started to feel better. I started to really enjoy what I was doing again. And um, I was a team leader of a group of guys, set up a, a climbing trip for us to go do some mountain rescue and some rock climbing, because um, that's part of our job is to do some mountain rescue stuff in, in really any environment. But mountain rescue was, was particular, something that was always fading. It was always a, a, a diminishing skill that we always had to work on. So we went out there, to, and it was also a morale trip. We went out there, five of us went out there, and started climbing. It was beautiful. It was out in Boise, Idaho. And on the second day of climbing, one of our guys sets up a, a rappel rope at a 70-foot face. All of us are at the top. First guy gets down, kind of taking in the scenery, instructing some one of our younger guys on how I like to build an anchor using traditional protection, so caming and nuts and stuff like that. And our second guy starts his rappel. He gets about halfway down, and then the anchor, the rock that was around the anchor, shattered and it failed. And so one side shattered, pulled out the anchor, and then it shock loaded the other side, and that fell. And so the guy that was on the rope fell 30 feet, hitting some of the rocks below and bouncing off. And well, what we didn't anticipate was one of our other guys was at the very top. He was tied into that anchor as well. So the weight of our first, our second guy that was repelling pulled the other one off at the very top. And so he fell the full 70 feet of being attached to the rope, hit the ground, bounced over to his face, uh, hit the ground on his back, bounced over to his face. I repelled down um, and felt felt for a pulse, listened for breathing, rolled him over, felt for again, and then had nothing. So we started CPR um, and then just continued to work on him, eventually placing a surgical airway in there. Um, and then also doing a field thor uh, thoracotomy or a field chest tube <coughs> without the tube. And ultimately worked on him for about 25 minutes and then he passed away. So we never really got him back. Um, and that was another teammate that was, and that's another one down, another one that passed away. And But I had been working on myself, going to counseling. And then this essentially was like the, the straw that broke the camel's back. This was it. I was um, analyzing what what was happening right in front of me. I asked, you know, he had a, a, a wife, he had a two-year-old, his wife was pregnant. Um, all of these things started compounding inside. So ultimately, I pulled myself off of the team, worked on myself for two and a half months. Um, this, this loss was very different than the other losses because we were talking about where we were going for dinner, what we were doing that evening this is a low threat environment. We're not getting shot at this. Everyone comes home. This is usually with the plan and me being the team leader, I felt I took the full responsibility of everything that took place. So as I pulled myself off a team, worked on myself for a little bit, I came back as a team leader, went on a, on a deployment. Um, as soon as I came back as a team leader, um, it was, uh, a no notice one and it was very successful nobody got injured nobody got hurt um we did what we needed to do and came home after about two and a half months 
we were getting ready to deploy again and the investigation for that accident closed out, which ultimately found that there was nothing that they could have done or nothing that we could have done to change what happened or to change the outcome. But ultimately they found somebody needed to be held responsible and I was held responsible and accountable. So I was removed from my position as team leader there at that unit and then I was removed from that unit. And that unit's a whole nother selection course. It's a, the only place I wanted to be, mm. the only place to do the missions that I wanted to be doing. So that threw me back into a depression, back into, I don't have confidence. I had a piece of paper that I could show, show my psychologist, this is my fault. Um, and so ultimately, if I was to take that, you know, I was given 30 days to PCS and then move somewhere else. And, and if I was given that, if I took that, I was gonna end up moving to Las Vegas. And I, I saw the pathway there where I was gonna drive myself and my family into, into disaster. So I chose to medically retire and continue seeing the resources, the therapists that I was seeing while I was there. But I knew at some point I was gonna lose those. And so if I was going to lose those, what was I going to do then? Started looking up resources outside that were available to the veterans um, and, and special operations community of veterans. And I asked some friends what they did when they got out. And there was just a, a list of things that, that they were compiling together. I was like, how do you have the time for all of that? That sounds like so much work. And so like, there's got to be a better way for a one-stop shop that we're used to. And there really wasn't anything out there. So I was like, we got to create something then. So I reached out to Jen, Dr. Jennifer Byrne. She has the same vision and she was trying to execute it. And she was doing a lot of the telehealth model. Um, she also like was in very early stages startup mode. So I asked her, hey, can you help me start this up? And uh, so then we started raising money. We started it up um, and essentially replicated what we had at the unit or what I had at the unit to be able to provide that for veterans, all veterans for those. There's so many people out there that had no clue that something like this, that saved me and my friends, nothing like they didn't know that that kind of stuff existed. Um, and there's other people in different communities that never had it. So my dad spent 30 years in law enforcement and most of it was as a, as a gang task force sergeant. And as I started to go through my PTSD, symptoms i started to realize that him and i were almost exactly alike as far as how we carried ourselves when he was my age you know how he was with me as a child um, and i was like i i'm exactly who he was and all of his symptoms were starting to present themselves as he is now older and retired and he's in and out of the hospital with with different symptoms and so it was a it was an opportunity it was a blessing an opportunity for us to be able to bond over our PTSD symptoms, but I then wanted to, it highlighted that these folks, these law enforcement and, and firefighters need the same tools. They need the same resources that I was given. So we wanted to offer that to all first responders, all veterans and active duty members. So we started that up and host individuals are, are those those folks inside of a facility that we tip, that we use it's a pro performance gym that typically works with professional athletes so they go in there for three weeks and they get strength conditioning programs nutrition they get meals handed to them made for made for them um, physical therapy and then we fly in our occupational therapists and our psychologists so all that's three weeks in person they're staying in a five-star resort and then when they leave there they get another nine weeks of the same 
clinicians and seeing specialists, but now they bring him at, to home. So it's all telehealth mm -hmm. model after that. So we include the family. So it's three months total um, and we run three cohorts so far. We've been able to change the lives of, of at least 18 of those individuals um, with a majority of them having previous suicide attempts. Um, and so far, all of them are doing uh, fantastic right now. And we stay in contact with them and continue to try to reach out to as many as we can to help as many as we can. What an incredible program and what an incredible story. I mean, the the similarities that you had with your father and um, the insight that you had, like, wow, like looking back now, you can get it and you can see it in a different way through a different lens, um, having been there than yourself. That's phenomenal. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And just the fact that I love that you didn't see the resources there that you needed, so you created them. And I think that's that's phenomenal. Thank you for doing the work that you do. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, they, um, I, there's so much more that we can do, um, and hopefully we can keep keep going. Unfortunately, because we're limited with, with our funding right now, but... Um, Right now, we just keep getting an influx of applications, and we have to turn away over half of them, which which is really discouraging, really <coughs> uh, yeah. awful. It's an awful feeling when somebody's asking for help, and I say, I don't have the funding to be able to help you right now. Uh, so hopefully one day we can get all of them. Right, right. Hopefully it'll be everyone. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, so you went, you personally went from serving our country to serving those who have served. So my question is, in transitioning from military to civilian life, has your work with Shields and Stripes, has that helped make that transition that you went through easier? Yeah, I would say so. I think um, a lot of the individuals, a lot of the veterans that get out, um, as, as a lot of people know, the, the previously reported suicide rates were 22, 22 a day for veterans. Um, and then in a recent study that done by uh, you know, Operation Deep Dive that had eight different states over a period of four years, actually discovered that the numbers are probably double that. They're probably more like 44 a day. Um, and so when you look at why are they doing that, what's happening with them, uh, the military does a really good job of transitioning people to look for, hey, here's a job, go get a job, go do a job. Um, here's how you should be managing your money. I think mean, they, they have programs like that and they're, do, and they're trying to figure that out, but none of them are doing, well, wh what is your purpose? If you look at everybody that joins the military, they're joining because they have a, a purpose. Most of them, I, I, would, I can't speak for everybody, but... I would venture to say between 90 and 95% are joining because it's a serving of purpose. They have a higher purpose there. They There's there's pride in it. They're going to do something to, to whether it's fight the enemy, whether it's to <clears throat> live out, you know, a, a, a dream, a family dream, or, or, you know, something that's been going passed down from generation to generation. Everyone served in the military. So all these things have purpose. <clears throat> when they get out and they lose that sense of purpose, then they almost feel like there's nothing left. Um, what, what are they doing? Yeah, they might have a job and they might be pay, paying the bills, but what are they doing to change lives? Um, what are they doing that they, they can be prideful of? Um, and then that's where you see them start to slip into this depression. 
me, fortunately, <clears throat> as I pursued my way out, um, and I started this nonprofit with, with Jennifer, this was that purpose. There was no, there was no like question of what's, what is my purpose? Well, this actually became my purpose and the loss of Peter being able to say or ask every day that I am doing right and doing good for him, doing, making sure that his loss wasn't in vain. Like that's my purpose is, is to make sure that uh, he was a, a very devout <clears throat> Christian and I try to, you know, he, I lost faith a long time ago and then because of his loss, I was able to rediscover it. <clears throat> so I like to find purpose in that and, and try to spread his message that he would have wanted to share. Yeah. So in, in short, yes, I would say that starting this nonprofit helped out the transition tremendously because if I didn't and I was working a job, um, let's say I was interning for another company and it was sales. And when I was interning for that company and trying to figure out the sales, it was, it was going to pay, it was going to give me money, but I did not, I was not going to enjoy that. That was not for me. <clears throat> Whereas this, I'm not getting paid out of this. I'm not getting paid from the nonprofit. I don't take a salary. In fact, I put most of my money into it. Um, but it's, it, it's what I do full time other than raise my kids and it's my purpose. So, um, I think that's what it really comes down to of, of transitioning is what's your purpose now? Right. It's just fine. Right. And I guess, so that leads me, I, I guess where our last question and it, it is for veterans who, who feel very lost and who are unsure how to find their way back to themselves. What piece of advice would you offer for them? Mm. <clears throat> Great question. Um, if, when someone's lost and they're trying to, there's always time. Time is always there. Um, if you are in this, in a moment when you are lost and feeling alone and you don't think that anybody's there for you, I would give it time and it will present itself because you'll always have time. The second you make a decision to take away that time, you're affecting the lives of so many people around you. And all the, the number one, the family members that, that probably love them um, or that do love them, but also the individuals who didn't know that this person was struggling. You know, we, I've received several phone calls from a lot of people saying that they're going to take their own life um, on, on the edge and trying to talk them down. And all it really ever comes came down to was that moment and a, a literal five seconds you know, maybe even shorter time than that of when that decision point was going to be made. And if I talked to them for 10 minutes, 30 minutes or an hour, sometimes all that went away. And so that was enough time for them to understand, okay, maybe this wasn't the decision and maybe that did that helped them today, but then there's other resources out there to help them long-term. And so we, we are not the only resource out there as Shields and Stripes. Uh, there's so many others that are out there and they're all willing to help. And we are trying to build a, a bridge between all of them. So if, if somebody's ever truly down that pathway, um, there's always somebody willing to help. Um, I'll just give it some time and, and it'll present itself. That's wonderful advice. 
Thank you so much for sharing as deeply as you have. Um, your story is phenomenal. The work that you're doing is, is so needed. And thank you again, not only for your service, but for being in service of others who have served. Thank you so much. Thank you for helping all of us just become a bit more aware now. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you, Ali. Thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure and uh, hopefully we can continue to, uh, to talk and keep this going. Absolutely. Thank you. Tune into our podcast, subscribe to our magazine, find us and join us online. Visit IamAwareNow.com. We will no longer wait for permission to change the world. Together, we are aware now.